It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I have this sense of my smile stretching from ear to ear right now because I've really been enjoying the pre-conversation with Linda and Charlie today. And there's so many different directions we can go in because we're going to be discussing relationships. And I am a very curious person. I am known as one of the most curious people that any of my friends have in their life. And curiosity has come up a number of times in our pre-show conversation. And it sounds like Linda and Charlie are big supporters of curiosity. I'm curious, do the two of you or either of you consider yourself curious as well? Or do you just enjoy being around curious people like myself? Well, thank you for the question. And nobody's ever asked me that before. And I consider myself to be extremely curious, and I consider Charlie to be extremely curious. And I think that it's a terrific strength. I wish people would acquire that quality more because we have a signature strength, each of us, of being lifelong learners. And we read a lot. We're at the library all the time. We read personal growth books. And I just can't get enough of the relationship books. And I feel like it's really propelled me in my life and that I have a rich, full life and understand more about how life and relationships work. And it's lifted me into the thrive zone. So I am all about encouraging people to work out their curiosity muscle. Well, we have that in common too, because I can't get enough of nonfiction. In fact, I've had to push myself to read fiction every once in a while as a break, because I could just lay around all day reading books and it just feels like there's always new information coming out. And that is kind of a fascinating thing, right? There's part of my brain that thinks there must be answers. There must be something that is universal or concrete, but it feels like for psychology and personal development, personal growth, there's always something new coming out for us to learn. And I guess we should be grateful for that because maybe it would feel a little depressing if there was a concrete answer, we would figure it out, and then what more would we have to look forward to? Have you felt that same or similar way when it comes to learning about relationships? Is there just like a never-ending journey of learning about how to be in relationships? Well, I don't know if it's never-ending. It certainly hasn't ended for me. I haven't <laughs> reached that point where, okay, got this one. I got this handled. I don't have any more questions about relationships. And I don't know anybody who is at point themselves. Although I have to admit, I do know some people who believe they are. And Boy, are they wrong. <laughs> They've got a lot more to learn than they want to think they do. So yeah, that's one of the incredibly fascinating things about being in relationships, particularly in a committed partnership. So many people ask us, I get along so well with everybody and I never get into fights and arguments, but why is it that with the person that I love the most, that's where the biggest challenges are? It doesn't make any sense to me. And no, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. But it is sort of explainable when you realize that this person with whom you're in relationship, your primary partner, they're the most important person in your life if you have a committed partnership. And that person is carrying an awful lot of your hopes and expectations and dreams and visions. And they can disappoint you more than anybody else in your life because there's so much riding on the relationship. And they can also provide for you the answer to your most important questions and the joy, the pleasure that you really most want to experience. They've got both possibilities, one in each hand. So it's not surprising that 
you can get into some of the most intense interactions with them, both positive and difficult. Where do you think these ideas come from? And do you believe that to be a generational change that happens in terms of how people perceive relationships and how much emphasis they put on their primary partnerships and romantic relationships? Based on some of the research that you're doing, I'm curious, like, is there a cultural shift that happens? Is it things that we learn in our own family systems or in religion? Or I'm just kind of curious the sources in which we even get these ideas that one person should be in charge of all our hopes, dreams, expectations, and there's all this pressure there. Is there a purpose to that? Or is it something that we need to learn to adjust? I think that historically, there has always been a very strong emphasis on the committed partnership and the romantic bond, and that the society you know, the tribe, the community was invested in seeing to it that relationship was wholesome, that remained intact, because it's the basic unit of the culture. And for that marital pair to stick together, to raise those kids, is going to be a stable community. And so, Things changed a lot, particularly in the 50s and 60s, when the religious institutions and the general public didn't put so much pressure on a couple to stay together, which in some ways was a really good thing because there were people who were miserable together, who were mismatched pair, who needed to free themselves and each other to go on to somebody who would be more suitable or live a single life. But I think that It's more difficult now without the support of family and religious institutions and community to stay together that each couple is flying by the seat of their pants to find out how to preserve the well-being of their relationship, to work with the differences, and to hopefully create a working partnership where both of their needs get met. And so some of the supports are missing And a lot of couples are in the void about having their new set of commitments, which is very individual for every couple, about what adds meaning and purpose to their relationship and really what they're about together. And so one of the things that we try to do when we teach our workshops, counsel couples, and write our books is to give people a starter kit to vision for their particular needs and to collaborate with each other to put agreements in place because it is more individual now, not so much about the community supporting couples to stay on track. That's a really helpful context. And sometimes the individuality seems like it could be working against us. I'm curious if it feels that way to you too, because we can get to this mindset of, every man for himself, or I'm not happy, so I'm going to end this relationship. That's been something for my generation being a millennial that I've heard a lot about of like, especially with online dating, people always feel like there's someone right around the corner. So if this relationship doesn't work out, they can end it and go on to another. And I suppose that could be different with marriage. It's a little bit more complicated to end a marriage, but certainly people get divorced frequently. I mean, the divorce rate can be incredibly high. And I wonder, do people treat marriage as less important? And are they so focused on themselves and not so much about working on the relationship? Are these some of the things that you've noticed in your client work or your research? I don't think that you can really answer that question without considering the bigger, broader picture of the shifts in the culture. Like Linda mentioned, post-World War II, post 1950s, let's say, there was a values shift from the focus on terms of relationships, keeping the relationship, keeping the marriage sacred and keeping preventing divorce, staying together no matter what. That loosened up, particularly in the late 60s and early 70s with the women's movement. And also that was influenced by women going to work during the Second World War. And that kind of broke up 
the idea that women's place was always just in the home. So there have been some cultural shifts that have kind of moved the balance from the focus on connectedness and the stability of the family, the marriage, and an awareness of a countervailing need that we all have, which is to be autonomous, to be true to oneself, not to just be true to the code of the culture that gives us very specific instructions about how to behave, how to act. If you're a man, if you're a woman, putting us in different categories. And one of the things that makes relationships so challenging, people are always saying, why do relationships take so much work? (laughs) We get that question all the time. It doesn't make sense. We're here to love each other. We're here to promote the development of our species. Why would it be so hard to love somebody? That seems like a natural thing that nature would support. Well, nature does support it, but there are some other factors involved besides that. And one of them is that committed partnership requires us to do two things that seem to be mutually exclusive. In other words, you can't do them both. You can only do one or the other. One is to dedicate yourself to supporting the needs of the relationship. The other one is to honor your own personal integrity. And so... Quite a balancing act. It's challenging. And it's not something that we just kind of plant ourselves on and say, okay, this is how I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to put 70% of my attention on the relationship and 30 on my personal desires. It doesn't work that way. We've got to be able to be sufficiently fluid and flexible to give to whichever side needs it at the time, most needs it. And so that's the challenge that we have. And many of us, like me and Linda, attract people on the other side of the fence. Like one of us is more geared towards personal fulfillment. The other one is more geared towards concern about the relationship. And that can be a good thing to a point. If we learn from each other. Yeah, but it can be challenging. It does feel challenging. And it's interesting as you're sharing that, I'm thinking back over many of my romantic relationships and I've never been married and my viewpoints on marriage have shifted. I feel a little bit neutral about it right now. At this stage of my life, it doesn't feel like a big priority, but I'm open to getting married. I'm not sure. (laughs) But it's interesting in my dating history how it felt like a little bit of like a distance. I don't know if that I've dated very many men who have felt willing to do what you're describing, which is A, to learn. (laughs) I feel I don't know if, again, if it's a generational thing, but I've also dated men beyond my generation too and had some of the same issues where there just felt like a resistance to learning, a resistance to true partnerships. And so many men in fact, the majority of them, I would say, would have kind of these walls up. And when things got tough, there wasn't a willingness to take down the wall and to come together and work through them. And maybe that's what has led to me not getting married yet. I felt in most of my relationships that men have put a distance in and then they would get so focused on themselves and the struggles that they were going through that there wasn't room for us to work together and to create the support you're describing. And it feels a little bit of a mystery to me. I'm glad that you're bringing it up. And we often have single people in our network over the years ask, what do you think is the most important quality to look for in a potential partner? If you're looking for lifetime material, and I did this funny little dance in my mind for a long time, whether kindness was going to be at the top of my list or whether passionate about personal growth was at the top. And I ended up putting passion about personal growth at the top because the people who have a commitment to learning and to growth and those characteristics in that person, do you know, are going to utilize everything that the relationship is going to toss up. Issues about commitment, issues about fairness, issues about negotiation and repair and handling differences well and communication. 
And a lot of people just aren't geared that way. Do you know they don't have the passion for it? But if you find somebody who's like-minded and has that curiosity and wonder and has that passion for personal growth, I think that's a winning combination. Charlie and I have both had that from the beginning. I didn't even have the words for it at the time. I just intuited it with him that he would be good lifetime material. I was sure he was kind. and I was sure that he had zest for life, but I didn't know how interested he was in learning. It took a little while till I knew him well. And then I thought, whoa, we're so different in so many ways, but in this very important way, we are lined up. And that has seen us through a lot of difficult challenges that we've had in our relationship. Health problems and raising kids is not just a walk in the park for, for a lot of us parents. And we just used everything that the relationship tossed up as an opportunity for growth. Now that makes it sound so lovely and easy in some ways and desirable. Not easy is not quite the right word, but there seems to be an ease in which the two of you relate. Like even what you're describing, it it does seem like something to admire and yearn for just the compatibility, I suppose. That's what the ease I'm feeling, but it does take work even if you are very compatible. And I'm curious because you offer so many resources, you've written books, you're teaching classes, you're doing lots of interviews, you're just putting out all this knowledge and you're not the only ones. There's so much information about relationships as we talked about. But why is it that some people are resistant to the learning? Why with the wealth of tools that we have for relationships, why do some people not want to take that next step to become more educated and grow? Great question. Relationships have other polarizing aspects one way or the other, besides what we you know, just talked about in terms of focus on the individual or focus on the quality of the relationship. And another example of that polarization is the desire and the need that we have for security and comfort. And on the other hand, a desire for adventure a desire for novelty, a desire for excitement. Mm -hmm. And so those are two complementary needs that we all have. And we have to, each one of us has to find the place on that spectrum. On the one end is the extreme of security, which is not good as a full-time diet. On the other hand is the extreme of adventure, which can be dangerous. <laughs> so we all have certain places on that continuum where we feel we're in our comfort zone. Maybe for somebody, it might be 50-50. For somebody else, it might be 75-25, one side or the other. So we all do need and want security, but not all of us have the same level of need for it. And if one person who feels particularly strong need for it, for whatever reasons, is what's likely is that they're going to be attracted to somebody who other side of that <laughs> equation. And therein lies <laughs> the answer to the question of why do we get into all these arguments? <laughs> but we're going to automatically, unconsciously gravitate towards somebody who is our complement, who is going to bring more balance into our life. We may wish that they were just like us, but it's a good thing that they're not. In fact, we're not even going to be attracted to somebody who is just like us. It'd be boring. Yeah, or else it would be too dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a setup. It's like, who designed this game anyway? This is crazy. So the challenge is, so how do we deal with this? How do we deal with these deeply entrenched positions and perspectives and needs that each one of us have, and we've been reinforcing them for decades. And then we meet this person who we're really turned on by because there's a lot of juice there. Well, the magic, the juice comes from the differences, yeah. from the dynamic interaction between those two poles. And it requires us to become more open, more flexible, more willing to learn, 
less secure in what we have decided is the way it has to be, less attached. That's the work that we have to do in relationships. I want to quote Wavy Gravy. Wavy Gravy is a holy fool. He's a clown and he's a profound spiritual teacher. He says marriage, and you could substitute committed partnership for marriage if marriage isn't your cup of tea, is a pit full of pitfalls devised by a devious deity for our conscious evolution. Mm -hmm. Isn't that something? I'm going to say it again, that marriage is a pit full of pitfalls devised by a devious deity for our conscious evolution. So this opposites attract thing, which we usually call it complements attract, is some very deep, wise, natural knowing in us is only magnetized and drawn to a person who's very different from us, has different signature strengths, who has different attitudes, even different values. And if we bring the curiosity and wonder mm -hmm. to learn from each other, that can be a dynamic duo. But you mentioned how easy people just go through the dating site and there are all these other opportunities if they hit a rough patch. They mm -hmm. give up and say, I'll find somebody who's easier and more fun mm -hmm. rather than going deeper where this relationship may have enormous potential for growth for both people, but they may give up too soon. And it's so easy to replace a partner these days rather than having that kind of joint commitment to dig deeper and really find out who we are and what we're meant to be doing in this life. Mm. And then there also seems to be almost the opposite end where some people stay in relationships that, at least from the outside, don't feel very healthy. And certainly there's a lot of judgment outside of a relationship. <laughs> you can look at people and say, oh my gosh, they're not compatible at all. I don't know why they're together. I mean, I find myself thinking these things, whether somebody is married or just started dating someone, and you just wonder, like, why are these people together? And sometimes you think, that they seem really unhappy and yet they stay together anyways. And I've often wondered, is that because they're committed through thick and thin or do some people stay together because it's kind of the opposite of dating a ton of people? Maybe dating in itself is scary and it feels more comfortable to stay in a relationship even if they're not happy in it. And so how do you know when you're in a relationship that is worth putting the work in and sticking through the hard times versus when you're in a relationship and it just feels bad all the time and maybe it's not worth any work? So that's a wonderful question. And we often get asked, how do you know when it's time to go, when it's time to hold them and when it's time to fold them? And we always tell people the same thing. Do your own work. Keep your attention on yourself. Know what your work is and really get committed to it because one of two things is going to happen. Either your growth and your development and your deepening of who you are and becoming a person of integrity, and what we mean by that is what you think and feel and say and do is all lined up as one. And when you start really living your life fully, either the other person's going to blow out or they're going to be inspired to do their work and to join you, and the relationship will grow and it will deepen. And I think you're right that a lot of people settle for so much less than is available. And they're afraid of change. They're afraid to rock the boat. So they ratchet their expectations way down and they settle for so much less. Anybody who comes to a workshop of ours or does any counseling with us or reads any of our books, it's risky for them because it's all about reaching high, having a grand vision. We call it going for the gold. And it's okay to have huge expectations about your life and what your relationship would be as long as you have intentionality to match it. You don't expect it to come to you brought on a tray. You work for it. And it's a labor of love. And sometimes it's pretty exasperating and you're confused and you're disappointed and you're angry and you're resentful and all that. And you keep trying to be as responsible as you can about how you communicate about your dissatisfaction and your lust for life and that you make a contract with your partner that you're going to work together to see if you can have both sets of needs met 
and both grand goals and visions met and that you're going to work together to bring out the best in each other rather than the worst of each other. And there's tremendous, it's a gold mine of potential, which we believe not enough people are mining for the gold. Yeah, it's so interesting because it makes me think about those pitfalls that you mentioned earlier. Like there seems like lots of gold and lots of pitfalls. And I think our society, at least in the U.S., feels very confusing because there's so much mixed messaging. We do live in a culture where the individual is emphasized a lot of times, but relationships are still a big part of our culture as well. And we hear things like, oh, relationships should be easy. You should just know when you should be with somebody. And if it's too hard, then that's a sign it's not working. And you should never settle. And so it's the, all of these ideas just feel incredibly complex. So sorting through them all does take an enormous amount of self-work because only you can have the answers for that. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Totally. 100%. We live in a disposable culture. I don't mean the whole culture is disposable, but I mean, in our world, when things cease to interest us or when they break down or when we're bored or whatever, let's get rid of it and replace it with another one. I mean, when I was growing up, when an appliance didn't work, you fixed it or you called in a repairman or something. When things broke down, you repaired them. And that applied to everything. Mm -hmm. And in our current world, that disposable orientation has come to include relationships. That if the relationship I'm in isn't fulfilling all of my needs, then I must be with the wrong person. So I need to find somebody else. And without the social pressure to stay together in a relationship, the motivation to work on it is gone if it can be replaced. And when I was younger, most people couldn't afford to buy a new refrigerator every time there was a problem with it. But when you can replace something, it's very tempting, whether it's a person or an appliance, to just get rid of this and get a new one. Because the new one is going to have all of the bells and whistles that we want, at least we think, in a relationship. We wrote a book called Happily Ever After, and 39 other myths about love <laughs> about six years ago. And there were 40 myths in the book that we buy into in terms of how relationships are or how they should be. And there's just myths. They're ideas that have been embraced by many people in the culture and held as truth, but they're not. And one of the myths has to do with someday my prince or princess will come, Prince Charming, and I will know it because there will be this incredible magic, magnetic connection that will just blow us away and we <laughs> will know. So many people make the mistake of thinking that the future of this relationship is going to depend upon how powerful the initial attraction is, how powerful, how strong our love is. And it's actually not love yet, because what we love is our projected, imagined expectation <laughs> of what things are going to be like with this person who I think I know, even though I only met him three days ago <laughs> or her, but we get locked into that. It's called confirmation bias. Once we believe something, we want to confirm that, yes, that's true. And so we put all of our marbles in that basket and the hopes and expectations that this is going to continue. This is what they're talking about when they talk about having a lifelong partnership. This is it. I finally found the one. And inevitably, <laughs> people hate to hear this, but inevitably, there's going to be a stage of the relationship beyond the infatuation called disillusionment, where you see that, oh, I guess that was an illusion that I had, that it was going to be easy and continue this way forever and begin to see that that was an illusion, that this person has some of the qualities that I love, but there's another part to them that get revealed as you get to know somebody better, particularly if you're living with them. You really get to see, because you can't conceal all that stuff forever. You can do a really good job on it for a while. At some point, though, we stop making such an effort 
to create the impression that we think this person wants to have, wants us to be. And at that point, we have to make a very important choice. Am I going to hang in there and do the work that I need to do in order to see whether this relationship really can be as sustainable as I want it to be? Or am I going to let this go and just, next? (laughs) That's a very important choice. Mm -hmm. And many people opt to call for the next one. Yeah, it does seem that way. I'm curious, is there any sort of timeline in which you can (laughs) safely measure the quality of a relationship? Meaning like, that beginning stage, especially appearance-wise, and especially if you're online dating, a, a huge struggle is that you're judging someone based on their pictures, you're reading about them, people are sharing all the highlights, their best photos, maybe their edited photos. It's this perfectly contrived viewpoint of who you are. And then to your point, you get to know someone and maybe even in the first date, you realize they're not quite what you projected them to be based on this limited picture of them that you were seeing. And some people, after just one date, they say, nope, this person isn't for me. And that might be way too soon. Because how do you even know if that person's for you after one date? And the opposite could be true too, where someone goes on one date and they feel like, oh, this is it. This is the person. But they don't really know that until a certain period of time. So is there an average of how long it takes to really know if someone's for you? Somewhere between five minutes and 30 years, <laughs> just somewhere in that, in that zone. <laughs> well, we know that people keep the looking good image up. In the beginning, do you know, the first many dates, sometimes even the first few to six months, there are even therapists in our field who encourage people to do that in the beginning, to keep the image up. But that's not our point of view. We encourage people to get real soon. Like you don't have to tell your deepest and darkest secrets on the first date, but be as real as you can be as soon as you can be, because it's an efficient use of your time together to not just send the persona. Do you know the image to the date? And I always recommend to people, the singles in the network, to not make the decision about committed partnership until you've hit a rough spot. Sometime in the first year or the first year or two, you're going to have some breakdowns, maybe some awful arguments, it may be in-laws, it might be sex, it might be money, career, kids. It could be any topic, but when you hit a rough spot, you find out what you're each made of, whether you're going to hang in there, whether you're going to have empathy and compassion and support and make room Do you know for what it's going to flush up? Because when you hit some kind of traumatic, challenging experience, there are going to be a lot of feelings that are going to come up and people are going to need extra that they don't need when things are just going along pretty harmoniously. And when you hit a crisis, and I say, don't let a good crisis go to waste, you find out what you're made of and you find out what your partner's made of and you see whether you're going to be good for the long haul because you're going to have a lot of blissful experiences in your decades together, and you're going to have challenges in your decades together, and you want to find out, are you a good working team? Do you bring your signature strengths together and really work through it together? And you'll find out that way. And so we encourage people to do that sooner rather than later. Really show up. It almost makes arguments something to look forward to (laughs) because that's where you really find out if the relationship is working. And given that that's the subject of your most recent book, you had 101 lessons in this book, which is quite a lot, meaning like arguments (laughs) are pretty complex. There's a lot to learn from them. So I would love to hear What was it that inspired you to write a book about argumenting? Is this one of the, I guess it's a challenge, but also, as I just said, an opportunity there. Like maybe looking at arguments is not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. And it's something that we actually need to have these experiences where both of us are revealing to the other person what our deeper concerns and values are so that we can find out more about who it is that we're partnering with here. So 
yeah, we need to bring forth those different perspectives. In the early stages of a relationship, if we're both attracted to the other person, then what we want to do is we want to figure out who they want us to be so that we can be that person so we're not going to lose them. So that's where our focus is. And we're doing whatever we can do to conceal what we think might be our less desirable aspects so that it's all a conscious or unconscious attempt to solidify this connection if that's what we want to do. So we don't really know who else is in there. But after we've spent a certain amount of time and some of those walls have come down and we're more Mm -hmm. relaxed with each other and less willing to keep having to put up the false front, then we get to see, oh, well, sometimes this person isn't quite so patient. Oh, they can be judgmental sometimes or whatever it might be. We can see those aspects of them that weren't so apparent to us before. And then we will have experiences together where we're both operating from aspects of ourselves that were not so evident before. And we get to see who we are, how this person responds to me when I'm kind of crabby sometimes or if in a bad mood. We get to see whether they counterattack if they feel judged. We get to see whether they're accepting and understanding under stress. We get to see them when they're being influenced by forces that are uncomfortable for them. Because, hey, we're going to have to (laughs) be dealing with this stuff because this is part of who they are. And so, yeah, having these differences come up, it's not a bad thing. It's a necessary thing Mm -hmm. because it tells us a lot about ourselves and about each other. And my sense about it is, is that I want to know who I'm with as early on as possible because the sooner I learn and get clear about who they are, the more time I'm going to get to spend with them if it's somebody I want to be with. And the quicker I can make the choice to move on, if I can see that, no, this is a deal breaker. I can't stay in there with this person because there's something there that doesn't work for me. Yeah, arguments are not the enemy. They're an essential part of the process. And what we want to support people in is not avoiding having differences because you're going to have them and you need them. What we want to support people in is to not go down that slippery slope where we're both coercing each other, trying to coerce each other to see things our way, where we're in control, where we're trying to get them to accommodate our demands. We're each trying to get them to see things our way. That's the hell that we're trying to keep people from descending in the book. And how about for people that have been in relationships for a long time and maybe think they know each other, but perhaps keep falling into the same habits of arguments that are very frustrating. There's one couple that comes to mind for this that have had a really loving long-term relationship. And yet there's dissatisfaction, there's frustration, and it just seems like the same issues keep coming up over and over and over again. And from the outside, I wonder, (laughs) you've been together for a long time. There's a lot of love there. There's a lot of commitment there. But why are you still having the same challenges? What do you do in a situation like that? Even the happiest couples have areas. The difference never gets resolved. And there's a lot of research about this, that 50 years later, the same unresolved issue that they came into the relationship with is still there. So to let that be, we're never going to see eye to eye about this. In this particular area, you have your view. I have my view. We have discrepant views. I'm going to respect your right to have your view. I hope you'll respect to have my view. And there's no real percentage in even discussing those areas because we're going to agree to disagree. Unfortunately, there's a lot of areas where we may have resentment, disappointment, which is workable. There are resolvable, but they haven't gone deep enough into what hurts about this, what's disappointing about this, what scares me about this, because they've stayed at the level of trying to influence the other person to change their mind, change their behavior. They haven't gone deep enough. Underneath the angry interchange, there's always some hurt and suffering 
and there's always some fear. And people are reluctant to open up that much and get vulnerable and expose that tender, vulnerable area. But when people can drop down to that level of communication, that's where real learning and understanding takes place. Not necessarily agreement, but learning and understanding where people can feel connected. And so I always say to these couples who keep going round and round and round with the same thing and they never get anywhere, you may need a third party or trained professional person to help you to create the safe space to be able to drop down to that deep level of vulnerability and talk about what's so painful. Often it's old, old stuff, childhood stuff or things An adult relationship could be a previous relationship. It could be the current relationship, but a previous piece that never really was discussed thoroughly, that wasn't repaired, that wasn't learned from, that's still festering. Do you know? It's still drawing energy. So it keeps coming up because it's incomplete and it needs to be discussed so it can be complete and laid to rest. You make it sound kind of easy, but I know it's not. (laughs) And you said that yourself, that relationships aren't easy. Here, the two of you are having just celebrated 50 years. And that's in your marriage, right? Not just the whole time you've been together. How long have you been together total? 54. 54. Wow. Yeah. And I imagine this comes up in your books, but I would love to hear it from you now. And maybe something you're reflecting on is... What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? And are there any new lessons that you recently learned in your relationships after all this time? The word that came to mind immediately when you asked the question is a word that Linda has used, and that is vulnerable, vulnerability. Like most guys, I grew up in a culture, although thank God that's changing. That's changed a lot since a culture where vulnerability was a sign of weakness and it was something to be ashamed of. And it was something that needed to be concealed, usually below a false front of bravado and aggression, which qualities that make it impossible for the other person to really connect on a deep level to you because I'm insulating myself with this image that I'm putting out. And that's something that the other person is going to be having to hit all the time when they want to connect. So part of the male conditioning, particularly in past generations, still there, but not so much anymore, has been to see vulnerability, which is an essential aspect of emotional availability. It's essential for relationships because you can't be authentic if you're not willing to expose and express the parts of you that you may fear would be judged by other people and yourself as being signs of weakness, which would make you appear to be unworthy of the kind of respect and love that we all want to have. So in this relationship, what Linda has taught me is that it's okay to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And the way she's taught me that is by responding to me in ways that have reassured me that when I do get vulnerable, when I do risk vulnerability, that I'm not going to get shamed for it, that I'm not going to be viewed as being unworthy, I'm not going to lose her respect, I'm not going to lose her love. So it's something that over the years I've tested by putting it out and putting myself out there and acknowledging rather than just getting aggressive or angry or intimidating or judgmental. When I feel insecure or threatened, I have been willing to risk saying, I'm really concerned about this right now. I'm feeling fearful about this. I'm, I'm feeling uh, envious. I'm, I'm feeling hurt. And getting a response that is reassuring me that I'm not going anywhere and I don't love you any less when you expose that part of you. I don't have any less respect for you. In fact, I love you more because you're giving me more of who who you are. So that would be my answer to the question. My personal answer 
is that is what has really made the difference for me, not just in the relationship, my whole life. And it was easy for me to give that to him because when he would speak from his tender heart, to me, it was so beautiful. I loved his sensitivity. It made him more attractive, not less. So that was easy for me to validate and to encourage that. But it was still a process that he could get over all of this belief system that he had about what a real man was. My growing edge was way different than his. Mine was about growing courage. And I will be grateful all my days for Charlie really demanding that I show up and be a worthy opponent and not cave in and cry and drift away because I used to be angerphobic and I was conflict phobic. And I thought that interchanges of an angry, passionate, intense manner that they were dangerous and that he would deem me a bitch and ditch me. And so I had to get over my fear and to have some assertiveness and to speak up. And I will admit that when I came out of hiding, I was a bitch on wheels and I was not very skillful about the way I did it. And I did threaten and I did judge and I did all manner of unskillful things. But I told you we're hungry learners and we had some good help. And so I learned to do a more refined way of speaking up in my own behalf. Do you know that I could use a fly swatter instead of a sledgehammer? But I needed to wake him up and I needed to be assertive enough to get his attention and to make sure that he really was hearing me, that my needs were not being met and that I didn't want to have power over him, but I wanted to share power with him. And I wanted him to stay engaged and in dialogue with me until we worked out some kind of a system where we could both get our needs met for safety and security and for adventure and growth. And it's a lot of conversations. All the couples that we deal with really underestimate how much good communication is required to grow that kind of a relationship. But who you're viewing right now is a couple of recovered hotheads, not recovering hotheads, recovered hotheads. But we've worked long and hard. And so now we can speak our truth without the blame and judgment. And we're sensitized to where that line is, where we can have a very deeply feeling, passionate interchange, but we don't go over the line to making the other person bad and wrong for having the views they have, for having the needs that they have, for having the feelings that they have. And in the business now of helping people to get sensitized to where that line is, where the differences enliven their relationship don't aggravate each other. I think the way that you speak your truth with that vulnerability, with the courage, with the transparency that you shared today, I imagine this is just a sliver of everything that you're teaching on a regular basis, what you're writing about in your books. And it's such a gift to this world because talking with you has revealed to me how complex and mysterious it can feel, but also that there are ways to to learn and to stretch. I love the growing edge terminology. That's such a great way of looking at it and and understanding that there's so much for us as individuals in relationships. And it's one of the greatest ways that we can learn about ourselves and also give to others and be generous and find ways to support people. And as you mentioned in the title of your book, which is An End to Arguing, 101 Valuable Lessons for All Relationships, we specifically focused on primary romantic partnerships today. But before we started recording, Charlie mentioned that it says all relationships for a reason. So the learnings in this book, in this conversation, and all of the work that Linda and Charlie do goes beyond the romance. And I think the skills that we can build in our romantic relationships can have a ripple effect and probably vice versa too. That when we do this work on ourselves and when we do this work with other people, it influences so much of our life and our well-being. So it's just been a joy to talk about this 
with you and to hear all of the lessons that you've been picking up in your relationship and from your work with others and just the sweetness, the kindness that you two have and the openness too is just so lovely to be part of. So for the listener, I will link to the new book that just came out a few months ago in February 2023 on Valentine's Day, in fact. And again, that's called An End to Arguing. And also to Linda and Charlie's website where you can check out everything else they do. I was learning earlier today about the teaching they do on both the East and West Coast. You're now expanding to a little bit more of the middle of the country as well, southern parts of the United States. Do you ever teach internationally or is it just in the U.S. right now? We have been blessed to be able to teach in Asia and South America and Europe. Yes, we do teach internet. And how about virtually? Do you offer virtual classes? Yeah, we've done classes online. We definitely have. And when people go to our website, they have a chance to sign up for our newsletters. So we send out a booster shot of inspiration once a month. And there's all kind of free things on our website. We've got three free eBooks. One is about sexuality. One is the 10 most important things we've learned since we got married. And there's another one called Going for the Gold about the qualities that we need to strengthen in ourselves to be eligible for a great relationship. And we've got over 600 blogs on psychology today. So people can read blogs according to their topic of interest. And we have over 100 YouTube videos on our YouTube channel. And for the people who like to read, we have recommended reading lists. That is so generous, the vast amount of resources. I remember being blown away when I went to your website and just thought, how have they done this all? But you've been doing this work for a long time and building it up. And it's just such a wonderful thing that you offer to the world. So for the listener, I will have links to the book as well as the website in two places for you. One is in the podcast description. So you do not have to leave your podcast player, depending on the player, I guess. Every podcast player is a little different, but most of them have a description underneath the episode. You might have to click see more and there will be links right there. And you can also find a full blog post of today's episode, which has the transcript and visuals. We're gonna put a picture from their 50th wedding anniversary celebration in there for you. And anything else Linda and Charlie like to send over to me, we'll add that into the blog post. And you can find that at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And that's also linked in the description of this episode to make it really easy for you to find that. If you want to reference any of the wonderful words of wisdom they've shared today, plus every single link that we've mentioned, including their other book that Charlie brought up earlier, that'll be put in there for you so you can find it all in one place. Linda and Charlie, it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you today. Thank you so much for spending some time with me and the listener. Thank you for inviting us. I've really enjoyed the interview. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 